Well, if you uh, need a Bible tonight, we're going to be turning in the book of Esther. We'll be looking at the rest of the book, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Raise your hand, and they'll get you a Bible if you need a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, consider that a gift from God Speak, the family here for you. You can take that home and enjoy that as you start reading through God's Word. As we think about things that are going on, have you realized how relevant all the passages of Scripture that we're going through? It is just like spot on. God's people have always been in this struggle against tyranny, against oppression, against tyrannical leaders trying to bring it down on people. And whether you're trying to rebuild the temple in the book of Ezra, you're trying to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Now, in this case, it's a genocidal law that has been passed by this creep by the name of Haman or Haman, depending on how you want to pronounce his name. And this guy hates one Jewish person, and so he extrapolates that to the entire race. He wants to kill them all in 127 provinces in the Mede and Persian Empire. But fortunately, the Lord supernaturally has his own plant right in the palace with Esther. And to bring you up to speed, the reality is, is that there, uh, Mordecai will not bow. Esther's uncle. And that's the title of our message, We Won't Bow. We only bow our knee to the Lord, the Most High God. And everybody else is men and women. We give honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect is due. But in this story, Mordecai will not bow to this Haman, this uh, Agagite who comes from the long line of the enemies of the Lord, all the way back to the children of Israel coming out of Exodus and the Amalekites attacking them. And then... <laughs> Years later, the Lord tells Saul to go destroy the Amalekites totally. He doesn't do it. And they save Agag. You'll notice that Haman is an Agagite, like from the family of Agag. And so King Saul is disobedient to the Lord. He does not kill Agag. Samuel, this old prophet, has to do the job for him that because he's disobedient. And so there's this age-old conflict between darkness and light, between freedom and oppression, between bullies and heroes. You know, I don't know about you, but I absolutely hate bullies. I grew up moving, and for six years, every six months, we went to a different school. And my brother and I, we would have this little uh, pep talk with each other as mom's checking us in at the office as we move from school to school. And I have an older brother, he's two years ahead of me in school, his name's Scotty, and he's really, he's a, he's a tough guy and a scrapper. But we realized from going to these schools that if you don't throw down and fight in the first two weeks, whoever the bully is, we don't know what his name is, we didn't know what his face looked like, we didn't know how tall he was, but he was coming for us. That's just the way it works on the playground. And my brother and I, my brother told me, no, he calls me Ricky, please don't call me Ricky. He calls me Ricky, he's now Ricky. You just, when they... Whoever that bully is that shows up, you give him all you got. And if he whips your tail, I'll come and whip him. And he said, and I'm going to do the same thing. Now, there was nobody. I couldn't rescue whoever whipped him because you know how it works when you're the little brother. But we were uh, at school at Campobello in Paradise Valley, Arizona for one of our short stints. And my next door neighbor, 
Cameron was in school with me at, on the uh, playground, and he was a year older than me, and him and I were having a lot of fun, and I met the bully in the first couple of weeks of school. His name was Scott Ladoon, and Scott was one of these guys that, like, in the fifth grade, he's already growing facial hair. He, he's, you know, we're, we're all in the, the four foot something, and he's already in the uh, five and a half foot, and a big, thick, built guy, real... Uh, bully, and he came over to my friend, and he just started shoving him to the ground, and every time Cameron would get up, he was just, he didn't have an agenda, he's just, you know, bullying him and pushing him to the ground, and I thought to myself, I wasn't planning on taking on this big thug, but my brother said he'll take care of him if he whips my tail, and so I said, hey, leave my friend alone, and he turned around, and I had to reach, and I hit him as hard as I could, right in the side of his face, and it popped his head back, and he came back with a look like, now you're dead. And I knew I was dead. I'm like, okay, this is going to hurt a lot right at this moment. And fortunately, a teacher was very close, came and broke it up, and, um, you know, nothing happened. But I broke my hand by punching him in the face. It's a boxer's fracture, and immediately a knot swelled out of my hand from breaking the small bones in my hand from hitting him. And so I went to the nurse of the school, and she said, what happened to your hand? And I said, uh, in the day, hula hoops were a big deal. So I said, oh, somebody hit me with a hula hoop and broke my hand, and the nurse smiled and said, sure they did, right? So I went into a cast, and I just knew that next week, Scott Ladoon is going to kill me. And, uh, but what I didn't know, my brother didn't even tell me. He went down to the bus stop the next day, Scott Ladoon's bus stop, which is this bus stop down, and knocked the tar out of him. And Scott Ladoon never messed with me ever again. But you know, all through life, there are people that they think it's their job to oppress you. They think it's their job to be a tyrannical bully, whether it's on the playground, whether it's at the workplace, whether it's in a place of government. And you have to come to the conviction and the reality in your soul that I'm not going to bow to your tyranny and your oppression. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going around, you know, punching everybody in the face. Obviously, as Christians, we're praying, we're asking God to help. But that's the beautiful thing about the passages of Scripture we're going through. We see the supernatural hand of God leading these people through. Because you see, growing up and going from playground to playground, I didn't know God. I couldn't invite him into my situation because I simply didn't have a relationship with him. I often wonder what it would have been like if he had been real to me and I knew him at that time. Well, we're going to jump in here in the book of Esther as we complete this book tonight. We won't bow. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week. Please stand with me. Hopefully you found that place in the scriptures. We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 14, and read through chapter 5, verse 5. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan. Oh, excuse me. I had to back out one verse here. Verse 14. For it, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. 
So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house. While the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter and the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as we may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we'd see wonderful things, that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we would realize that in every generation, Lord, you are faithful. And in every generation, your people have the opportunity, even the responsibility to stand up against those who would oppress us. Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, you may be seated. As we started off, or finished last week, we start off this week, we won't bow to the fear of death because that was what was at stake for Esther. Why was she complacent? Why did she want to dodge this bullet and not go before the king? Well, if she came to the palace and he did not extend the golden scepter and she came and touched it, that he would accept her, it was the law of the Medes and the Persians was, it was death. Now, Mordecai had to reason with her. He had to tell her that, hey, don't think you're going to escape because they don't know you're Jewish. They will find out and they will kill you last maybe, but you are going to die. So you might as well take the risk because how do you know that God hasn't brought you here for such a time as this? And we left on this note, each one of us have been brought to this place in history to be useful for God. And it doesn't mean that we weren't for the last year and we won't be for the next year. But right now, we are in a crucial time in this cultural war in America where oppression is coming on specifically against God's people, specifically against conservative, good, law-abiding citizens. And we have to realize this and realize that if we just try to dodge it, they may come for us last, but they're still coming for us. So we might as well contemplate, okay, if I lose my life, if I lose all my wealth, if I lose my home, if I end up in jail, I mean, what are they going to do? Threaten me with heaven? They might as well send me to heaven. It's graduation day. I get a you know, leave everything behind for somebody else to pay the bills. It's, it's a good day. But you have to face that because otherwise you keep dodging, stepping up in this heroic moment. And so this is what Esther comes to that point. She says, I'm going to go. Now, Mordecai, you and everybody that you can tell, and me and my maidens, we're going to fast for three days. We're going to fast and pray for three days. Now, let me just tell you, if you're going to make a big decision that could be lightning, uh, life-threatening, I think it's good not to eat food for three days and pray about it. How about you? That'd be a great opportunity for you to hear the voice of God in case you're making the greatest mistake of your life. Just, just fast and pray for three days and just seek the Lord's favor. And she receives that favor when she goes in before the king. He tells her one of those things that seem to be famous in Middle Eastern royalty. He says, 
Esther, what do you want? Up to half my kingdom. Now it seems to be apparent hyperbole because you remember when Herod, his uh, um, girlfriend's daughter danced for him on his birthday and he said, you know, ask what you will. He was so impressed with her dance. Ask what you will, up to half my kingdom. So it was a bit of a hyperbole and uh, none of them were actually going to ask for half of the kingdom. She simply just asked him to dinner that Haman and him would come to her house that day for a banquet. And he goes, okay, I'll do it. That's an easy ask for um, King Herod, his girlfriend's daughter. She asked for the head of John the Baptist. So it was a little tougher ask because he believed him to be a prophet of God. But when you step up and you take that opportunity and you fast and pray and God gives favor He brings you through a very scary situation. So are we going to bow because we're afraid to die? There's a lot on the line. I would rather die standing for freedom than to live a life in oppression. Sadly, we think of what's going on in Ukraine right now, and no doubt all of those Ukrainian soldiers are wrestling with that same thing. Do I surrender? Do I fight? Do I allow, they know what it's like to be under the boot of Russia. They were for a very long time. The Russian army is famous, as I was watching an interview with an American retired general this week. He said the Russians are famous for their brutality against women, against, you know. We're praying for those in the Ukraine right now. They're in a terrible place. Oppression, as we're talking about it in a historical context, is just happening over, over the pond, right? Right now, the first time, the opportunity for World War to break out again in Europe for the first time since World War II, peace treaty was signed in 1945. This is an epic time. Not only an epic time there, but as China watches and with what's going on in Taiwan and with the weakness of American leadership and three more years in office, you watch as China swoops in and comes after Taiwan. We are living in unprecedented times, but this same administration that is weak abroad want to put their boot on the neck of the people in America, masking us and vaxing us and taking away our constitutional rights. We live in unprecedented times. So that's why... Characters like Mordecai and Esther are so inspiring to me. When you think about it, we won't bow to bragging bullies. Look in verse 9 of chapter 5. It says, so Haman went out. Now he, he goes to the banquet. He's going to, uh, she asked him back for the next day. So she asked him that day for a banquet. And for the sake of time, I'll jump sections and just narrate them. And he's going to come back the next day. Verse 9, so Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Now, if you were going to stop this story right here, you would think, oh no, this bragging bully has everything. 
right? He's got the king's favor. He just had a banquet with Esther. He has no idea that she has a real agenda. And he thinks he's the most favored person in the kingdom next to the king and the queen. This is pretty heavy, heady stuff. So much so that he invites the friends over for drinks, a little cocktail hour, has his wife come and says, you know how many kids I have and all of my wealth. And I mean, he's just bragging away like he is on top of the world. But just because somebody is bragging and boasting in their moment of success from their perspective doesn't mean that that's the way the story ends. In verse 12, moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. This is 75 feet tall. And in the morning suggests to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the, the, the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. This is his wife and friend's suggestion. Now, I don't know what your cocktail buddies are like, but if they're telling you to build a gallows for your next door neighbor so that you can, and it's not hang them like we think of a hangman's gallows, they impale them like it's a stick and put, you put their body on it like a toothpick. And this reality that this is who he's hanging with, these bloodthirsty people that look at Mordecai the Jew and they say, just, you know, you have the king and queen's favor, you're dining out with them two days in a row, just throw it out there that in the morning go to the court the king's court, and, and just say, hey, I want to build this gallows. Well, he's already built the gallows. I, I want to kill Haman. He's just irking me. He won't bow to me. He's a Jew. He only bows to God. Now, in this moment, with the friends cheering on this bragging bully, he goes, that's a great idea. He's going to wake up in the morning before the sun even comes up. He's going to be the first one in the court of the king so that he can go before the king and give his request. And his request is this, that he can hang or impale like a toothpick this Jew that is rubbing him the wrong way. This is what I love about the sense of humor of God. Can you hear the laughter in heaven right now? Because look what happens in chapter 6, verse 1. That night the king could not sleep, so one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, if anything will cure insomnia, it's like watching C-SPAN, right? But this is the old C-SPAN. This is like reading a book. And so it's the Chronicles. It's the daily diary of the king's court. Talk about boring. So he can't sleep. So, hey, bring the Chronicles. That'll put me to sleep. And they were read before the king. Verse 2. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on the king, Ahasuerus. Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So he reads, and now his ears perk up. Instead of getting uh, put back to sleep, his ears perk up, and he goes, hey, this guy uncovered an assassination plot from my two of my doorkeepers, Big Thing and Teresh. And by the way, when they investigated that, according to chapter 1, it was true, and those guys were impaled or hung. And obviously, this guy should get some merit badge, right? What? What kind of award reward does a king give someone that just saved their life? Well, you're going to see. Verse 4, 
So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him, and he's wondering how he can honor Mordecai. Isn't God's sense of humor? (laughs) I love it. Here this bragging bully that is going to try to kill an entire race of people is coming to ask to request to kill one man on the gallows that he built 75 feet high, basically like a seven-story building so that everybody can see the body that's hanging on it so that this is what happens when you don't honor me, Haman. And yet the flip side of that, that the king says, Mordecai is the one that saved my life through an assassination plot, and I want to honor him. So it says in verse five, the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court, the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman, this is beautiful. Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Moi. Now if you think the king's gonna wanna delight you, He's probably dreamt about this in the past. Like, how could he be honored? Because he's an egomaniac. I mean, he's off the charts. He's one of those guys that when you you talk to him at a dinner party, he talks on and on and on and on and on about himself. You ever been with someone like that? They talk on and on and on about themselves. And at the end, when they finally run out of energy, they say, why don't you talk about me for a while? Right? Their, Their favorite subject. So this is what he comes up with in his, his grandiose mind because he can only picture the king honoring himself. Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, I love it. Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew, your mortal enemy. (laughs) Who sits within the king's gate, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. (laughs) You gotta love it, don't you? You just absolutely have to love it. God has a sense of humor and he has this, this sense of justice But oftentimes we see justice taking a long time to come to fruition, but this is like turning on a dime. Within Haman the night before is ordering gallows to be built for Mordecai, and in the morning he's going to be honoring the man he wants to kill. So, (laughs) verse 11, so Haman took the robe and the horse arrayed Mordecai and led him horseback throughout the city and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king wants to delight. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, if If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened Haman 
to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now Esther, when she came into the king's presence, she asked him to come to a banquet immediately. So Haman and the king came. The king said, what can I do for you up to half my kingdom? She said, well, if, if I've found favor in your sight, please come tomorrow again to a banquet. This is Middle Eastern hospitality. She's gonna come, you know, just gonna feed them the first time and then have him come back for the request the next day. So chapter seven. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the queen, king again said to Esther, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, now, I forgot to mention my title here. We won't bow to awkward confrontation because this is the first time that two radical things are gonna be declared before the king. One, her ki the king, her husband, she's gonna let him know she's Jewish. She, he did not know. And with Haman there, she's going to call him out as the murderer with the plot to kill all the Jewish people in the kingdom. Now, this is an awkward confrontation in a living room setting. Imagine you're going to bust this news. And think about the nervousness that would be inside of your soul. You're going to call this mass murder. I mean, basically, you're having dinner with Adolf Hitler. And you've got to call him out in front of this king. And you also have to reveal that Adolf Hitler, who's killing all the Jews, that actually you're one of those Jews. Returning to the story, verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my request, and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. She even goes so far to say, if we were only gonna be sold as slaves, I would have just kept my mouth shut. But because we're gonna be killed and slaughtered in this genocide. Verse five, so King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Haman's right there. Don't you know he's just melting into the couch? I mean, the guy is dying right now. He's already had to honor Mordecai. Here's what the king does to the man <laughs> that he wants to honor. In verse seven, Excuse me, verse six, Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. This had to be an epic moment right now. Here's sweet Esther, this wicked man, Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. So he falls across the couch as if he's begging her for his life. Maybe he's even touching her in some way. And when the king returned from that, that place, uh, then the king said, will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? Is he actually going to attack my wife right here? And as the word left the king's mouth, they covered his face. The eunuchs moved in. The security team moved in. They put a hood over his face. Now Harbona, 
one of the eunuchs said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, 75 feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. You, You couldn't humanly make all of this happen, right? You couldn't humanly, God's intervention, they had fasted and prayed for three days. God supernaturally is moving now in the affairs of men. He gives the king a restless night. He can't sleep. He has him start reading the chronicles of his daily activity and just rediscovers this heroic moment of Mordecai. Therefore, he wants to honor him. One thing comes together with the next in a divine tapestry of the divine plan of God to rescue his people. God is on the throne. And we hear this a lot right now. There's kind of a, a fracture in Christendom across America. There are those who just step back from what they see in the oppression and the political scene and the cultural war, and they've basically tapped out. They just said, God's on the throne. I'm just going to go over here and hide and hope that none of them find me. We're going to have a little holy huddle. Then there are those who say, no, no. God is on the throne, but who did he use to intervene here? Mordecai, Esther, All of the people surrounding them fasted and prayed for three days. They made themselves available. They stepped out in faith. They were willing to perish. They were already going to perish, but they were willing to take a step of faith and actually have a conversation with the king of the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. They were actually going to step up and say something and do something and have the courage to do it. God is on the throne, but his people are on earth. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to use you and I. He wants us praying. He wants us seeking him. He wants us to be involved in the very fabric of our culture so that we are salt and light in every area. And to think that you can just tap out and go hide in the woods and think that's going to do something good, you're out of your mind. God is sovereign And he uses people in the process of his deliverance. This is how God works all the way through. He saw the children of Israel. God was on the throne, right? He saw the children of Israel oppressed in Egypt. Did he just wave his hand in heaven? And all the people were released and left Egypt? Or did he go talk to somebody? He met Moses, right? Lit the bush on fire. It was a fascinating sight because the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. You know, like a tumbleweed burns and it's toast. It's, I mean, it's ashes in moments. No, it's burning and, and, and he draws him there. And then he speaks out of the bush. He says, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. I've heard my people. I've, I've saw their affliction and I've heard their groaning. And they're crying out to me. They're praying to me. And since my people are praying to me, I'm sending you as my servant to go deliver them. You go to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go. And Moses gives five excuses why he doesn't want to do it. Five things. So, oh, I can't, I can't. Who am I going to say sent me? I mean, what's your name? You tell them, I am that I am, right? And you know, Charlton Heston had a hard time with that whole thing in the Ten Commandments, playing Moses. In this process, as he keeps laying out the excuses, in that whole process, the last time he made an excuse, he said, I can't talk. And it says that the Lord burned with anger towards him. He said, who made your mouth? If 
I made your mouth, I can help you talk. But he said, I'm going to give you your brother Aaron. You're going to be like God. You're going to talk to your uh, brother Aaron. He's going to be like a prophet, and he's going to speak to Pharaoh. Okay, good. Let's go get the job done. Do you know that we see times when God supernaturally intervenes, but it's always in cooperation with the people that he's called to do the job? Joshua is having an incredible battle, right? And Joshua, he utters the most courageous, incredible prayer of faith ever. He says, Lord, make the sun stand still so the sun doesn't go down so we have more time to wipe out the enemy. And so it says, for about a 24-hour period. Now, if you're an astronomer and you know how things work, that's not, you just don't throw the brakes on things, right? God supernaturally makes it stay light for 24 hours. And then it says, God starts sending hailstones. And more people, more soldiers were dying from the hailstorm. Like these are missiles, like baseball sized missiles taking people out. But God did not sovereignly do it apart from his people's engagement. Joshua was on the battlefield. Joshua was praying. God was working with him in cooperation. I find this divide very strange. I often wonder that people that take this posture, I, I wonder, have you spent a lifetime of faith? As the people that I know, for the last 36 years. God moves on their heart, they get involved, they fast, they pray, and God uses them to accomplish his purposes. That's how God works. And yet why is it in this strange era that somehow half the church in America has checked out from being involved with our society and our culture? And if we collapse in this cultural war, you can lay the blame squarely at the feet of the complacent, fearful, lazy people of God that simply did not engage. And they're sitting in the woods singing kumbaya, saying God's on the throne. I promise you, God's on the throne. He's never not on the throne. But do you know that the Lord says, for the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards him. Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. Do you know that God is looking throughout the earth to find somebody that his, he can strengthen their heart to be useful for him? He found someone in Mike, Mordecai. He found somebody in Esther. And all of this happens. And now Haman, who had built the gallows the day before to hang Mordecai on, is now hanging on it himself. And as Proverbs 26, 27 says, whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone will have it roll back on him. Do you know when you are a person that is trying to harm and hurt others, and you're trying to dig that pit so they fall into it, or you're trying to roll a stone over the top of them, that's the pit you're going to fall into. That's the stone that you're going to have roll back on you. Even uh, James O'Keefe, who was here, saying how he was railroaded by the... Um, federal uh, lawyers and the whole legal system, and he was basically on probation with an ankle bracelet for three years, that at the end of that three years, that DA and three of the lawyers who were doing corrupt, unlawful things, all were fired and all disbarred. They tried to dig a pit for him. They tried to roll a stone on him, and they fell into that pit, and that stone rolled back on them. Justice does come around. What you sow, you shall reap. 
So don't think these people that are doing these awful things are going to get off. People say, you know what, they're, they're never going to fire Fauci. And let me tell you, Fauci's going to get his comeuppance in what he has done to the American people. God will take care of that. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will take care of it. And as we watch other people that have been on this train, whether it's the, the governor in New York, now he's no longer the governor of New York, or his brother at CNN, he's no longer there, or the, you know, Jeff Zucker, who is the CEO of CNN. It's like, how, those people aren't there anymore. But it only takes years for it to unfold, right? It takes years to all come out in the wash. And so it does. Well, we also won't bow to evil laws because even though Haman's out of the picture, the laws of the Medes and the Persians, once a law is in place, you cannot change the law. You cannot legislate the change of the law. You have to actually just make another law that will counterdict that law and that one stays in place. So we have to get involved to change legislation as we see here, Mordecai and Esther, and we have to do that in our own nation, these bad laws that are getting put into place. In verse one of chapter eight, it says, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman and the enemy, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Haman was one of the most powerful, wealthy men in all the kingdom. And so the king, just with one decision, says, here, you can have my signet ring. You're going to be able to pass whatever laws. Here's Haman's house. He gave it to Esther. Esther gave it to her uncle Mordecai because he's a very gifted leader and courageous leader. Verse 8, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please and sent letters by couriers on horseback riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. So there's a real need, right, to get the communication out fast that this new law that they're going to write, and this new law is that they can defend themselves, the Jews, because there was a certain day on the 13th of the month of Adar, all people of the kingdom could destroy and kill men, women, and children of the Jews and then steal all their stuff. That was the law that Haman had passed. And so they sent the message out there quickly. In verse 11, by these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in the, every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. The city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. As soon as they heard the word that they could defend themselves, oh, they were so relieved. Because otherwise, the entire community is going to come kill them and their families and take all that they have. So they were so relieved. Man, aren't you relieved when you hear some terrible law is overturned? You're just so relieved. You just want to rejoice because of the right thing happening. Verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday, Check this out. Then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. There was a mass of people that got, got converted to Judaism. They became believers because they saw this incredible miracle happen and the favor of God upon Mordecai and his reputation. And now that they're like, hey, I think I want to be one of these people. I want to be one of these Jews. It's the craziest thing to me that in the time of this great tyranny and oppression, we're seeing all kinds of people come to Christ. 
People are coming to church because they have nowhere to go to find any encouragement from their fear. And they come into the house of faith. They're filled with faith. And they think, hey, I, I want to be one of you Christians. You Christians are fearless. You Christians want to walk with God. You, you're not afraid of all of this stuff. You're not afraid of this COVID cult of ridiculousness. I mean, if you're healthy, it's basically going to be like a cold or the flu. Now, granted, if you're unhealthy and you have problems, then you have to protect yourself. But to cut, shut down 99% of our nation when we're not at risk is delusional. It's absolutely delusional. So many people converted through this process. We're going to see, I told, I've told some ministers that are wondering about what's going on at Godspeak, and uh, you know, they're hesitant to open their churches. This was you know, some months back. And I'm like, man, you're missing the Corona revival. They said, what do you mean? I said, this is the Corona revival. Like people are getting saved and getting baptized and, and, and you're totally missing the, the bandwagon because you're, you're mask and vax and doing all your stuff online. And I was talking to somebody last week, they were a part of a church in LA and it seats 2,500. Even today, now, they have 40 people coming to the sanctuary, 40. Out of 2,500 seats, they're still doing all the online stuff because they're still afraid. They're totally missing the revival. People are scared, literally, of death and the hope of conquering death is Jesus because when we leave this body we're going to be present with the Lord we have nothing to fear it removes the fear of death well we won't bow when attacked so now they have to defend themselves so hopefully they have there in the land of the Medes and the Persians the second amendment right they must because they have weapons because now when people are going to attack them they're going to have to defend themselves in a very physical way. Chapter nine, verse one, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. No one could withstand them because the fear of them fell upon all people and all the officials and all of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout all the provinces for this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with the slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. The Jews, in verse 12, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the capital, and the 10 sons of Haman. So his 10 sons were killed. Verse 15, again on the 14th day, because they extended the battle basically one day, they killed another 300 in Shushan. And then in verse 16, throughout all the kingdom, they killed 75,000 of the enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Says it twice. You see, the Jews wanted to make sure that, hey, we're defending our lives. If you come here to kill us, we're going to kill you. But we don't want to rob you. We don't want your stuff. We don't want your plunder. We want to just be left alone. We're peaceful citizens. We want to live in peace with our neighbors. This is, has, we don't want this. But the beauty of this whole story, you guys, has given the Jewish people a national holiday that they celebrate for two days every year for the last 2,500 years. Did you know that? So in Israel, check this out, in chapter 9, verse 19, therefore the Jews celebrated with gladness and feasting as a holiday. For, send and send, for sending presents to one another. It's, it's kind of like Christmas because they were delivered. So they called these days Purim. 
And Purim, because originally, the month of Pur, where uh, Haman had cast lots for the 13th uh, day of when they were going to uh, annihilate them. So they chose this, and that's what they call this holiday, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation. Now, this is 2,500 years ago. We'll see in a moment. Did, do they still do that? Every family, every province, every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. What do they want their descendants to remember? That when tyrants bring oppression and genocide, God's people can fast and pray, and God will use them to deliver them, right? That's the whole story of Esther. God will put the right people in the right place at the right time in the right offices to bring it about when God's people fast and pray. God can do supernatural things. So check out this clip. This is 2019 before the 2020 uh, corona shut everything down, and this is a little glimpse Today, if you go to Israel and you are here at this time of the year, check out what happens. No, it's not Halloween, it's not Mardi Gras, and I'm not at Midburn. We are celebrating Purim, probably the most fun Jewish holiday of the year. On Purim, we dress in costume, dance in the streets, have a big meal, and are as merry as can be. People eat these delicious cookies called Haman's ears in Hebrew, send gifts of food to their friends, and donate to charity for the holiday. Traditionally, Jews gather to listen to a reading of the Book of Esther, which retells the story of Purim. Purim takes us back over 2,000 years to the Persian Empire, where the Jews were living in exile. The heroes of the story of Purim are Esther and her uncle Mordechai, who saved the Jews from a wicked decree calling for their murder. After the Jews overcame their foes, they celebrated. And so we celebrate today. So that's still happening today. What happened 2,500 years ago? And did you catch that? Their treats or their, uh, the pastries they eat are Haman's ears. They call them Haman's ears. And they're these little decorative ears. And so you, uh, but it's a fun costume party. Now, I doubt if a lot of them, because they look like it's more of a Mardi, Mardi Gras feel. I don't know if a lot of them are reading the book of Esther. But we are here tonight, and we're glad they're still remembering that they can celebrate, because would they have been able to celebrate 2,500 years ago if Mordecai and Esther bowed down to the tyrants? No, their entire race would be dead. They'd have been wiped off the face of the earth. They would no longer exist. There would be no dancing in the streets, because they would let the tyrants win. You have to stand up to bullies in every generation. The oppression that we've seen in the last couple of years is incredible. You know, we remember and honor the greatest generation ever from World War II. And this is what it looked like when the oppression of the Nazi Germany, the Japan that attacked us in Pearl Harbor, and uh, Italy, these, this trifecta of evil was trying to take over the world. Look at the celebrating that happened in the streets in Times Square when they were free from the oppression of those kind of tyrants. Throughout the world, throngs of people hailed the end of the war in Europe. 
It is five years and more since Hitler marched into Poland, years full of suffering and death and sacrifice. Now the war against Germany is won. A grateful nation gives thanks for victory. Hundreds of thousands crowd into American churches to give thanks to God. The celebration, because you see we live in a fat, sassy generation that knows of no hardship. And we don't know of oppression. And lost is the generation that fought the communists in World War II. And isn't it ironic in this very week as we share this message that war again now is breaking out in the Ukraine? And who is the oppressor? Who wants to take the land grab? Vladimir Putin. He wants to rebuild the USSR that fell apart in 89 when Ronald Reagan said, President Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, what's it like a little closer to home? Not the Jews celebrating from the tyranny of Haman 2,500 years ago, or from the celebration of the peace treaty that ended World War II. But what about some children for the last two years that have been masked like little prisoners in their classrooms? What's it like for them to hear as these children in Las Vegas heard the report that they no longer have to wear their mask in school? You think they're a little excited? Check this out. Starting tomorrow, we don't have to wear masks anymore. <laughs> And it's not just American kids look at the same thing that happens in Israel, but they try to go over to the garbage can and try to tear up their masks. They're so excited. Look at this. I want to tell you that in He's trying to tear up his mask. That's what freedom looks like. Amen. That's what freedom looks like. But the beauty is, is that we won't bow to oppressors or oppression. It says of Mordecai in Esther chapter 10 verse 3. For Mordecai the Jews was second to King Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitudes of his brethren. Notice what kind of leader he was. Seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. We need leaders in office again that will seek the good of the people of America. And speak peace rather than fear mongering and controlling us and masking our children. Mordecai got the position that Haman had. A wicked man was replaced by the godly man Mordecai. And he's now the right hand of the king, very much like Joseph became the right hand of the king. Without Joseph, 
stepping up and being willing by faith to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. God is on the throne, but he uses his people around the throne of governments to influence and bring about those who would seek the good of the people of a nation, to take care of them, to be a prosperous nation and a peaceful nation. Tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, I think of Mordecai, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he may exalt you, that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. We humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will lift us up in due time. But we, by faith and through prayer, need to engage, to be plugged in, to be part of the answer to the time of the crisis of our nation. Whether we see it in the book of Ezra, the people stepping up to do that, rebuild the house of the Lord, or in Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the Lord, or Esther now stepping up to rescue their entire nation from genocide. God's people are the answer to the oppression of this world because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name, that you would strengthen us and encourage us. Lord, we make ourselves available for your usefulness tonight. Lord, we, we ask that you would take our humble lives, we humble ourselves before you, and, and we're not sure maybe how to get involved, we're not sure how to make ourselves available, but we pray that you would give us wisdom your word promises that you who works in us to will and to do your good pleasure. So, Lord, would you work in us and reveal to us what your heart and your, your plans are for us, your people. Lord, strengthen us now to be a voice. Strengthen us now to be your hands and feet. Lord, may your will in heaven be done now in our lives here on earth that we can make a difference and people would want to convert, people would want to believe in you, Lord Jesus, because of the, the strength and the fearlessness and the boldness and the faith that they can have in their lives. Lord, may we be a city on a hill that attracts those who are frightened, who are broken, who are hurting as a place of hope and strength as your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord in his presence.